0: All right, good morning, everyone. It is officially 9 o'clock, even though yesterday it would have been a different time today. So congratulations to you all for being here. If you're planning on being an hour early, you have failed. You're actually on time. So um, come on in and grab a seat. If you guys don't have one of the for today, this is crackling, isn't it? I'll try to stay still, how's that? Um, if you don't have one of the handouts, they're back in the table in the entryway, make sure you grab one of those and make your way back into the sanctuary and we'll get started. I'm getting some popping and I, I'm guessing it's my fault. All good? No? Okay. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open with prayer and as you guys file in, we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the change of seasons, we thank you for the way that you have um, just put the planets and the, the world into motion, Lord, and the things that come along with that, and Lord, we live in a place where we um, adjust the time a little bit, and, and even that is uh, wonderful, being able to have the, the sun in the sky for a longer part of the day even though it is really difficult with kids. And, um, Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the people that are here gathered together to to learn and to worship. And we just pray that as we do that, that you would speak. Um, Lord, that our hearts would be uh, open and our ears would be open to what you have to say. And, Lord, that we would just be lifted up as we fellowship together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, um, For those of you that don't, very few of you here, (laughs) my name is Brian Fenstrom, and we are going through a Sunday School series called Milestones in Biblical History, and last week Bill kicked it off with uh, Genesis 1 in the beginning. Yeah, I don't know what's going on either. I'm just going to freeze is really what's going to happen. I'm going to have to overcome my desire to wander. And this week, we're actually going to be talking about the fall. So the way that this all works out um, is on this timeline. So you guys can see here that uh, we did creation last week, and you can see looking at a young earth timeline from the creation account where we actually have history and dates and and ages and things along those lines. We've got somewhere somewhere between 4200 and 4100 B.C. when creation happened and we have gone almost nowhere going into this week. We are at the fall and the curse, and that's uh, very applicable considering the subject, right? So we've, we've moved almost no time whatsoever, and I get to cover 1,600 years of history this morning, okay? So everybody buckle up. We're going we're gonna to just plow forward, all right? So now, last week Bill talked about Uh, In the beginning, in in God's creation and the things that came along with that, and we didn't get into, you know, all of the the normal details you get into with the creation account, but we had some really good things talking about God's glory and and why he did these things. And so in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and by Genesis 3, man made a mess, right? So we've gone almost no distance whatsoever, so if you guys have your Bibles with you, um, you can open them up to Genesis, and we're going to be in the front side of Genesis. And if you guys didn't notice, I did some—I I did some very, very—the extent of my artistic creativity with um, with PowerPoint here. You can see this is Bill's picture here behind in the background, and using a little filter, I did this, and you see that it doesn't look quite the same because that's what ended up happening. A mess was made, right? So. You guys can make fun of my artistic ability all you want. But this is really where I'm going to start this morning. So when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and we see God making man in his image, he specifically says in his image. And I always, always love seeing pictures of mountains reflecting on water. I don't know what it is, and if you don't like that, there might be something wrong with you. But, I, yeah, I always like to, to pick a house. Um, somewhere like there, right? And then that would be my lake and my mountain and that would be really, really nice. Um, But it's interesting here because when you see when the water is really, really still how well the reflection represents the, the object, right? So you see the mountains and you see the trees and you see the color and you see the sky and you just get all of these, um, all of this definition that's there, right? And it's, it's not the object, but it's close, right? It's, a, it's a reflection of the object, and it really represents it well. And when, when the Bible says God made man in His image, it didn't say that He made man to be God. It said He made man in His image, right? So. As we look at that and we think about ourselves being made in God's image, we're working and looking at the image today, right? And how the image gets distorted and how th- that comes into play. And so we are going from this pinnacle where everything is very, very good. It's this beautiful representation of, of what God wants. It's, it's wonderful. It reflects almost perfectly back on God, what he has made. And we're going to get into the mire. We're going to get into the, uh, into the mix, So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. I've got them up here. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, so as we look at this, we're seeing God giving an instruction to Adam specifically and directly, okay? And this is pre-Eve as well. So we don't have the law as it's been given, right? Sin has not yet happened. Adam has a job, but Adam also has the capacity to obey, right? So God has given him instruction, and Adam is expected to obey this instruction, Not only that, we see when we get into Genesis 3 now that Adam has conveyed this to Eve. So if you guys will, turn to chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17, and we'll be getting into our discussion groups um, when we start with this. So you guys can see kind of my breakdown um, of what's going on here in these different verses, but let's just read that together and... Well, I'll read it out loud. You guys can listen. Otherwise, it'll sound weird. Um, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we see that Adam has communicated to Eve something about this tree. It doesn't say that God communicated it specifically to Eve, but we know that at least Adam has communicated to Eve something there and maybe even added to it because God, it, it's not caught that God said don't touch the tree. But we all know this when we have children and we say, I don't want you to play in the living room near where that vase is. In fact, why don't you just stay out of the living room, right? Same kind of a thing. Adam has maybe added on to the, to the rules a little bit, right? So, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and said, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we've gone through the deception. We've had the deception happen. We get into verse 7, and all of a sudden their eyes are open. They realize that something has changed, right? So now they're enlightened in one way, but something is different, and they're not exactly sure what yet. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Okay? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? And, of course, God knows that this has already happened, right? God is asking them questions to see if they're going to be truthful in responding to him. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so as we read this, we see right away that something has happened, right? Adam and Eve recognize it, and then when God comes in, he makes it plain. But here's another picture of a a mountain pool, and you can see that there's some ripples in there. And we notice that even this small thing, seemingly small thing, has distorted the image that God had originally made, right? Right? Just this very, very small thing has distorted what that is. So um, in your groups now, what we are going to do is have you guys take a look at this. And we're going to work kind of backwards forwards. We're going to come to the middle on this. And uh, looking at the curse of the man in verses 17 to 19, how do we see that curse practically today? And then work up to the curse of the woman. And then... We'll be comparing that. So, you guys can see these questions up there. They're also in your handouts. So, you can join into your groups, and we'll take a few minutes, and then we'll pull back together. Okay, I'll draw everybody back. No, it hasn't been a lot of time. I know, I know. Rick, that is a normal status for you. All right, did anything relevant come out of the discussions? What do you guys see? Anything set up? I've got the mic. I'll walk around and find you. guess we're all in agreement it all just went well all right thanks Willie so I was curious if you in your study we we got stuck on a point with the uh, first 16 maybe where it says your desire shall be contrary to your husband but then the KJV says your your desire shall be for your husband so why the difference and so in in my study on that so that's referring to the yeah the the verse where they talk about the woman's desire being for their husband, and we will get into that a little bit more, but the contrary to your husband, it seems to be a relatively recent translation of that that came about uh, out of the feminist movement, the second stage of the feminist movement is what I found. So, And it was actually a woman that that came up with that. So um, it's not necessarily honest to the text, going back to the actual Hebrew text. So the the word desire, is translated, and it's the same word that we're going to see um, in chapter 4 as well. So we'll get into that a little bit more on there, but yes, so um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it more there. We're not going to probably get too deep on it because it's a uh, can be interpreted a couple different ways. Good question. Other things that came out of it? Nothing? Did it make sense Do you guys follow? So when we see the curse of of the man. We've got obvious examples in our lives, right? We have, if anybody's ever kept a garden or worked in a field or anything along those lines, we have continuous work to be able to let the fruit come out of those things, right? If you've got trees and everything along those lines, if you've ever been in an orchard, uh, the fruit that we eat, it does grow on its own, but to produce it in any sort of quantity or anything along those lines requires diligence and work for people to do that. And occasionally it, um, produces forth a really great crop and you don't have to do a whole lot about it. The same thing with animals. If you want animals to produce for you, you have to work with them um, to, to get those things. We're in a first world country, so we're pretty far removed. Um, the The general uh, population statistics in the United States is that we have 2% of the population that produces all the food for the whole 100%. And then some of our country and, and a lot of the other countries, we produce more food in this country than just about any other place in the world, right? So it's a we're, we're a few steps removed from that, and our idea—it's work to go to the grocery store to gather what other people have grown, right? And 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 slaughtered and butchered. So we're maybe a little bit farther removed, but we still have to work. There's still things going there, a, unless maybe a certain political party decides to get in there, and then we'll just have to work at a later on in life. Um, then the curse of the woman also. Uh, pretty obvious from the pain in childbirth and things along those lines, right? So um, I think I heard my wife talking about epidurals in the back there, and <laughs> um, I got laser ears. So what she are they supposed to hurt? I, you know, so, um, but it's still there, right? Whether you mask it with, with drugs or not, there's still pain that's associated with that. I didn't feel much, to be perfectly honest, but Kelly told me that it was rather uncomfortable yeah I know it's gonna gonna feel it okay so when we look at this curse and we compare it to what God promised in chapter 2 what did what did God actually say in chapter 2 right chapter 2 he says when you eat of this tree you shall surely die right in that day you will die so we see here that they're being cursed, but the death isn't instantaneous. So that's a little bit of a, an area to say it's like, okay, well, what happened there? And then that brings you to the question of why didn't God just kill them? How many people were there? Two, right? There were two people there. So, and yet God didn't say it's like, you know, I'm just going to start over. I'm going to push the reset button, right? Because he could have. He totally could have done that. But he chose not to, and I think that there was a reason for that, okay? Because were Adam and Eve the only creation? They were not. Adam and Eve weren't. There was all the rest of the creation, not to mention the heavenly beings and the spirits that were there. And Adam and Eve were on display for all of the rest of creation, right? And Satan was opposed to that. So this is the quote that I came up with that I think fit with that really well. It says, but once you throw a stone, there are ripples in the pond, even if you remove the rock. So removing man from life at that point doesn't change the fact that the creation was affected by what Adam and Eve did. So even if God had gone in there and said, okay, man screwed this up, I'm going to remove man from the situation, the damage had already been done, the disobedience had occurred, right? And so it's been fallen. And so now our reflection is, like we saw before, where the ripples are on the pond and the image of God is now distorted. But we know that God is needing, is to be glorified in what he made and that God doesn't make mistakes. And so even though man made the mistake, it's the reflection on God that we're dealing with. Okay, so moving forward, we're going to go into chapter 4 now, and we have Cain and Abel, and we're going to get into our next discussion point here pretty soon, but what do we know about Cain and Abel? So as we read through this, we see that they have Cain as the firstborn, and then they have Abel, and Cain and Abel are raised up to the point that they are doing jobs, they are working. Right, so they're born before Seth, which we have a date for Seth. Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. Okay, So they're born sometime before that, and they're living under the curse. So Adam and Eve have already been cursed. The, the ground has been cursed as a result of what they did. And so Cain and Abel are out working, doing, doing their jobs to be able to produce their fruit. So Cain works the ground. Abel raises livestock. Okay, and so they had to do this work in order to survive, and as a result of doing this work, they recognized something about God. And as, as you look at verses um, five through seven, we see that um, God is very present there. Cain and Abel recognize that they made something, and they want to give a part of it to God. Cain gives some; Abel gives the first fruits, and uh, God has regard for Abel's, but doesn't have regard for Cain's, and. Cain gets angry and the Lord says to Cain why are you angry why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you but you must rule over it okay so we see God actually entering into this situation and specifically talking to Cain and encouraging Ain, Cain really in this right he's saying listen isn't a, this isn't a fatal thing that you've done, but you need to do a good job, okay? So he's very present there, um, spending time with him and doing these things, and when he talks to Cain, the word that he uses there is like what uh, Willie asked the question about, this desire word. It's the exact same Hebrew word. It's called teshuka is the, the way that we pronounce it, and that's what it means. It's an actual desire for. So if we use that and we say that... Um, if you have an author that uses the same word twice with different contexts, that helps you understand a little bit more about what that author was trying to say. So it's saying that sin's desire for Cain is similar to the woman's desire for her husband. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's contrary for him, it just means that it's an unhealthy desire. So the woman's desire for her husband, as far as what I was reading, is oftentimes read as she wants something godlike out of her husband that her husband can't actually provide for her. So she puts something towards her husband on that. It's something that the man is not able to give to his woman or to his wife. And the same thing for sin here. Sin's desire is for mankind not for his benefit necessarily and he's not able to fulfill what the sin actually wants. He's going to die in that. So that's that it's a similar usage of the word Teshuka or desire for. And there's there's lots of good commentaries out there. I encourage you to read them. Um, the Gospel Coalition had a good one. Um, but anyway, the Blue Letter Bible goes into that and breaks it out, and you can actually see it's the same, it's the, it's the same word. Strong's like H8669 or something like that. Okay. Alright, so we get another step added to this curse, though, because after Cain kills Abel and and says to God, no, am my bro- my brother's keeper, God further curses the ground for Cain. So the ground was already cursed, and he's, he's a farmer. He's growing things out of the ground, but he further curses the ground and says, it's not going to produce for you anymore at all. You're going to have to go, and you're going to be a wanderer and a vagrant, which basically means he's going to go have to take food from other people in order to be able to do this because it's not going to produce for him. And so he's going to wander as a fugitive. And... Um, What you see is Cain's remorse in this is not remorse for killing his brother, it's a remorse for the punishment that he received for it. He said that this is too hard for me to bear. Doesn't apologize. But you see then Cain's lineage after that and his descendants follow right in his footsteps. Okay, so we've gone from a ripple in the water to a storm building, right? This water is not going to reflect anything, not going to reflect anything that's up there. So we've got a storm that's brewing that's completely distorting what God intended it to make. And we're rapidly approaching something a bit more. And that's where we get into Genesis chapter 6. Okay. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So as we look at this and we see that there's, if you you look in the text, there's about ten generations that occur um, between Adam and Noah, okay, And in those 10 generations, we've had that level of um, devolution in man's intent and man's regard for God, okay? So 10, only 10 generations, about 1,600 years. But I go back and we see in Genesis 3 the gospel and hope, and that's where we want to go in this, the gospel and hope for what God actually had intended all along. And we see it here in verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay? So, and, and you can see here the verses, verses 14 and 15. This is occurring before the curse is given to the woman, which is in verse 16, and before the curse is given to man in 17, 18, and 19. Okay? And so, in that, we have hope. Because what we see is this enmity between the serpent and the woman means that the woman wasn't instantly cut off. The woman wasn't instantly killed, right? Mankind's line does not stop at that fall. She's going to be at war with the serpent. In fact, we already know that that war is going to start because what did the woman do as soon as she was found out? He did it, right? So any chance of reconciliation between the serpent and the woman, like, no, oh, he's my friend. No, nope, they were not friends, and she realized it, and she pointed the finger at the serpent too, Right? There was going to be enmity. And between the serpent's seed and her seed. And so the argument here is that she is going to reproduce. There is going to be reproduction by the woman that's going to go forth out of this. So man will die but man will reproduce and they get to move forward on there. And he shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head and you, the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. And so This is specifically pointing to Jesus and this is the first rendering of the gospel in the Bible and we get it right away almost in chapter 3 and this is called the Proto-Evangelium as it's the the very first mention of what God's overall plan was for his creation. He knew that these things were going to be happening and he put all these things into into, uh, place before he went. Okay? So when we think about what that actually means and we look at everything as it progresses and throughout history and we see all of the, all of the terrible things that man does to each other and to the, to the creation itself and we see these ripples in this, in this water, it brings me to this image of, of Jesus calming the storm, right? So when we reflect poorly on God, it's not God that we're affecting, it's, it's the reflection of God. And that water is troubled and is turbulent, and it can get so bad that it scares us even to death. And this, when Jesus is out in the boat with his disciples and he's sleeping in the boat and the storm comes up and they're afraid that they're going to die, think about how that water reflects. It doesn't reflect anything. In fact, it's so overpowering, so overconsuming that you can't focus on anything else. You're so worried about this reflection. You're just caught up in it. You're going to die. And finally, when you call out to Christ, Christ actually enters into that, and he is the reflection, and he smooths it all out and blows everybody's minds when he does it, right? He is the restorer. He is the image of God, the physical image of God for us to look at. He restores it, and that's exactly what we needed. So we've got the picture here. Our discussion now, I'm going to have you guys read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24. And then, do we see God reaffirming his promises from Genesis 2 and 3, Is the discussion question? And then, um, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, this reflection and how that affects God. Okay, so take a few minutes and jump into that. Okay. Draw it back in. What did we learn about uh, God's promises that relates to First Corinthians? <laughs> Anybody have any discussion about that at all? The first portion. lots of text to choose from here. This was the one that I came into. Do we see God reaffirming his promises from Genesis 2 and 3 in Christ? Yes. Does man die? Yeah. Man dies, right? But Christ was raised from the dead and the bruising, I always found that kind of interesting when you look at chapter 3 when he talks about bruising that the man will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise man's heel, the seed's heel. And how that implies injury, right? A, a bruise is injury. And so Christ, we know in reading through the Gospels that Christ was injured, right? He was, he was brutally beaten, scourged, crucified, and put into, into earth. But the, the death was a temporary death. It was not a eternal death, whereas if you think about getting bruised on the head, that's a mortal, a much more severe injury, and yet when Christ died on the cross, we don't see that Satan was immediately sent off either, right, so it wasn't that he lopped the head off of Satan at that point, Satan still is in existence, so this bruising implies that there's still some time that's taking place on here, but Christ has, has done his work, and now is with the Father until we get there. So we see that reaffirmation of promises. Now I'm curious about the, the second part of that. What did you guys get? Did you have any good conversation about the, the image and reflection that we are and what that actually does to or says about God? Good conversation about that. I've got the mic. I'll bring it to you. you want it to be I'm totally content up here what do you guys think if we're the image or the reflection of God yep does it does it actually do anything to who God is Yeah. So we're the reflection. So God is God whether, whether we're good or whether we're not, right? God is God. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's where we went on there is that the object, so here if we look, and, and, and here again the image here is we've got these, these rugged mountains and then we've got this, this pool that's reflecting those mountains. No matter what we do in that pool, those mountains don't change right they just are they are a force they are a, a part that's beyond what we are they are they're removed from that same reality so if all we're doing is looking at the mountains through the through the reflection we can do everything in there and we think that that reflection we think that the mountains are being changed but that's not the reality of the situation god does not change god does not make mistakes god did not do anything wrong in any of these things. God is God, and we are not. But we are the reflection of God, and so we have a tendency to cause chaos and things like that around us, but that actually doesn't affect who God is. That affects possibly how other people see God, which is our plight, is to hopefully reflect God in a better way, right? And we have in that model Jesus himself, right, who is the perfect representation of what man was supposed to be from the beginning. But it doesn't change who God actually is. Does that make sense? All right. So I don't want to end on any sort of a downer whatsoever, the idea is, is that God's glory and God's creation was made for his glory. So I'm actually borrowing some of Bill's slides from last week. God created all of this and put all of this into motion for his glory. Okay? Bill outlined that and did a good job of that. So he's got several verses here talking about what his purposes were. Okay? And ending with uh, the Piper quote from last week as well. God created the world for his glory. God did not create the world out of need. He did not create the world out of a deficiency that needed to be made up. He wasn't lonely. He was supremely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created the world to put his glory on display that his people might know him and love him and enjoy him. And we make a mess of that reflection. But in the end, all of it, is going to be used for God's glory. Whether we do well or we do poorly, God will be glorified in our lives or in, in the lives to come. So that's where I really want to end up. And I also want to give a little bit of hope and what we're looking for. Um, so we see that God had cursed the ground with Adam and he had further cursed the ground with Cain and that created some, some additional stress. And I'm not going to go into this any further than what this is because Bill is going to be talking about this um, this stuff next week. But when Noah and his family came out of the ark, Noah built an ar- altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, "I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again." destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. A promise God sealed with his rainbow, right, in the sky to us that things are going to continue on and no matter how poorly we do as people, God made this to to continue on, right? We have a ton of things in the news all the time about climate change and the world is going to burn and it's not going to go forward. It's not what God says. God says that we are going to have seed time and harvest, that we are going to have cold and heat in summer and winter. He doesn't say we're going to like it all the time, right? But it's going to be there. Life is going to continue on until he says it's done, and that is a big hope in light of all the things that are going on there. So I want to enter into time for prayer for uh, today. And so these are just topics that I put on as it related to the, uh, the topic today. And so in your groups, um, we'll take the remainder of the time that we have, about uh, 11 minutes, and just pray with one another, pray for one another, pray for these things. Praise the Lord. And we'll close this one. Time's up. time's up so um, you guys are released and if you got kids downstairs go grab them and we'll look forward to getting into the message together when we're done.